The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer for the podcast. It's really just a two-man show. Today's episode is episode number 269. As a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that people can find us and hopefully get resources from our podcasts. If you want to watch videos, check out our YouTube channel by the same name, The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, and give us a thumbs up on our videos, subscribe, and ring the bell so that you'll get notified when we have a new episode. Today we have an episode with Liz Olszewski. Now, Liz grew up with an alcoholic mother, and that fact obviously affected her quite drastically, as we know that it does. And then in 2009, she founded the nonprofit Horses Healing Hearts, and her organization uses horses to help children of addicted parents. So let's talk to Liz Olszewski. Liz Olszewski, thank you for joining us today. I finally got your name right. I have to go back and redo my intro because I think I said it at least two different ways. But thank you so much for being on the podcast today and being willing to share your story. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So since actually your contact with addiction started when you were a child, Start with where you grew up and what your life was like as a child. Sure. So um, I have two siblings. Um, we grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and um, a lot of violence in the home. My natural father, um, he left when I was about six. My mom and him got divorced, and my mom remarried another gentleman um, of Russian descent who was also an alcoholic. And so many times that's what we find is you know, they hang, hang around people who have the same habits as them. So he was um, also pretty, pretty violent. I mean, there were points where on the farm that he lived, he was an engineer and a pilot, very uh, intelligent, um, creative man. And within the first two weeks of us living there, he had a bonfire with our toys. Yeah. He did not believe in uh, anything. His, his father actually um, escaped Russia during World War II, before communism. So um, it was, he was an uh, eccentric character, but very brilliant. So, and you were we, how old at the time? I think you said I about was seven. Yeah. Seven. When that okay. And we, um, we wanted to please our parents and just stay out of the way. And we kind of knew we were different, but didn't really know how, and no one wanted to talk about what the problem was. So we all kind of assumed it was us, right? So fast forward, um, Ivan decides to get sober and my mom and us three brothers move out and in a series of homes that are pretty, um, not the great greatest conditions. Some didn't have running water, heat in Ohio that got pretty cold. Um, and my real father never did pay child support. So, you know, to my mom's credit, she, um, she did the best she could and she had the disease. So um, when I was about, 14, I, uh, Ivan sent me to his sister, which would have been my step aunt. And she was a concert pianist. And she also trained dressage horses. And she had come across this Mustang, um, quite by accident that she ended up adopting and really didn't even know what she was going to do with them. She just knew 
where he was, he was not happy. He was literally like trying to crawl out of the stall. He was so wild. So she trained him over a course of two years to go from not even being able to sit on his back to like fourth level in dressage, which is a very high level. Wow. So when I first met Jonathan, I went there for the summer to just be with Aunt Susie. And that was when I'd say my first connection to anything in life. I wanted to move towards something instead of away. And um, I saw the little scars on his back from where he had tried to escape a barbed wire fence. And I thought, you know, your scars are on the outside. Mine are on the inside. You've been rescued and done amazing things. And, and I'd like that same fate if possible. So and the horse was Jonathan. That was the yeah, horse. It's Jonathan. Yep. So that summer was incredible. And I learned not only from riding and connecting with Jonathan, but aunt Susie, you know, her and uncle Jim would have dinner and have open a bottle of wine and, drink about half the bottle of wine and then recork it and put it away. And I thought, what strange behavior. I've never seen anybody not go through three bottles of wine, you know, it's just weird. So, so anyways, I learned a lot. Then I, I come back and my mom is diagnosed with six months to live because of liver disease. So we didn't know it at the time, but my aunt, another aunt in, in Dayton took me to live with her because we thought mom was past any day. She ended up outliving um, by 10 years. The doctors were off. Wow. But, but every day with my aunt um, and my two cousins, I thought today could be the day, you know, and as much as I had anger for my mom and resentment, I was really torn because I wanted to be very careful that whatever my words to her were not the last words. So a lot of mixed feelings and pressure. Um, she was your mom. You know, there's was. a bond there, you know. Yeah. Are you a mom, Liz? I am. I have. Yeah. A so you get it. I mean, yeah. Anyway. I didn't get it until I had a daughter. My Understood. mom said, you're going to be paid back in spades. And I was quite resentful and nasty to my mom. I felt ju justified, you know, verbally. I would, I would just let it rip. But, um, but anyway, so got married, got out of college, got married. Um, we built a series of successful businesses, tanning salons, sold them, um, came to Florida with the dream of, you know, buying this expensive dressage horse and pursuing my dream. And we did, but um, this horse is beautiful and Robinho's his name, but no one really informed him he was in dressage. So oh. <laughs> I'm having to say in that. That is a very specific skill that a horse yeah. has to have, I believe. Yes. And he was bred for it. But again, just attitude wise, um, he just would rather be Ferdinand the Bull. That's what his thought was. So he never hurt me. I mean, it was beautiful and safe, but it, it really taught me to ride. And it was the whole struggle on the journey was me always trying to get to a medal or do this or do that through him. And I think his message was, I want to be loved for who I am, not what I can do or what wow. I can do. So that was humbling. Um, but along the way, I, I decided that I wasn't fulfilled. All the money, the perfect horse, the beautiful horse, the living in Wellington, you know, everything I ever thought I wanted, there was still a huge hole in my heart. And I can remember doing this thing that Tony Robbins recommends. It's, it's called the, um, the graveyard, no, the funeral, I forget the name of it, but you basically you envision your, the end of your life and your funeral. And the people were there were very sweet. And, but everything they were saying about me was that I was a good balance to my husband for business. And Not I thought, what you want to be remembered for. No, I'm put on this earth for way more than that. So yep. I thought, when was I most happiest in my life? 
and it went back to that barn with Jonathan. And I thought I kind of had this vision of like um, uh, a pond with like little pebbles being dropped in it and ripples. And I thought, you know, that's the effect that Aunt Susie had on me in terms of me being successful. Certainly there were other people, but um, another Tony Robbins thing is he says, if you're, if you're stuck, just ask the right question. And I had been writing a book for several months and, and just didn't feel like I was ready to put it out. So I said to myself, how can I help children, which is the goal of what I wanted to do and involve horses? Cause that's my passion and took about three or four months, but I was sidewalking at another group and it got out and I saw this little bumper sticker with the puzzle piece floating away for autism. And it said one in a hundred. And I thought, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. If they're one in a hundred, I know children of addiction is like one in four, shockingly. Plenty of people that need it. Horses helped me. Why not? You know, so I went home, told my husband, he said, is it being done? I said, no. He's like, maybe there's a reason. And I said, screw you, I'm doing it anyways. <laughs> you just now, you've now um, egged me on to do it more. Um, so I did, I started it with two kids and about $75 in the bank and no barn. And we've been doing it for 13 years and um, we've been as high as 40 kids. Um, right now we have about 20 kids on board, but we've helped over 600 families. And we've also do equine therapy for the adults. So we've helped, we've done over 6,000, worked with over 6,000 clients, individual clients for the treatment adult side of it. But um, so it's come a long way. And I tell people now we have less than $75 in the bank, but we're still going. <laughs> But um, so so that's it, it was my life's work. And it's certainly been challenging um, to start this. And um, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's been the most rewarding. And the horses are so, again, I was telling you earlier, and, and I don't know how you want to pull this in the conversation, but there are real scientific reasons why it why it works. Interesting. How many horses do you have? So I don't own, I own my one horse who's now in Tennessee, but what we did again, Is that the one I, that didn't want to do dressage that one? Exactly. <laughs> retired. Rubino. Um, so I didn't have a barn and that was another one of my problems. And so another thing, this feels like a Tony Robbins commercial. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> uh, another thing he says is don't reinvent the wheel, find somebody who's already doing it. So I, um, I got online. I found a place called horses in the hood in California. And what she did was she would bring the kids in for six weeks, inner city kids, and work with them and then send them to another barn. So I thought, I'm in Wellington, like the epicenter of the equestrian, you know, um, performance world. Certainly there's a ton of barns. So I went and in, in, um, established relationships with area barns and said, can we come here and, you know, for weeks and, and it all worked out. I mean, at one point we had four sponsor barns. The most challenging thing is to find a place that can be ambient air conditioning that's not filled with hay or tack or something. Because these kids, sometimes they're opening up about sexual abuse, you yeah. know, and it's not appropriate for somebody to be coming in and getting their bridle right in the middle of them. But so that we've made it work. So explain how the program works then, because it sounds like you have you have. Um, like a little bit of therapy involved with with just the interaction with the horse. So explain how it works. So the first thing I started was it's called prevention um, education, and there was logistical intentional reasons for that for insurance. But so what happens is kids, I, to describe it to the, most of the people, as I just say, think of Pony Club meets Alateen, 
meets Breakfast Club. For those of you who are old enough, I'm dating myself for Breakfast Club. Yeah. But <laughs> two hours every other week, and they come to the property in Delray. So we've been in Delray Beach for the whole 13 years. And um, we have a little clubhouse that they built for us, like 12 by 20. The kids come there and um, there might be four to eight in a group and it's separated by ages. There's elementary and then middle and high school. And they're on property for a total of two hours. But the first 20 minutes is, is typically highs and lows for their week. So it might be, I got an A on a test to my dad's on life support because he <laughs> overdosed. So it's a wide range. Um, and then the next thing we do is we work through a curriculum of it's put out by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health. Um, and it's basically life skills that they're not learning at home. So coping, feelings, decision-making, safe people. Our goal is to give them the tools so that regardless of whether mom or dad gets sober, they know how to help themselves to the degree possible. That's so, huge. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's that, huge. That is really big. I mean, we do such things, and this always makes people take, like, take a step back, but we literally go on with the kids that if you have to get in the car with somebody who's drinking, that's wasted. And you know, they shouldn't be driving, but you also know you could get hit if you don't get in the car. The safest place for you to be is the back seat in the center and zip your lip. Hard to, hard to, to teach that. And yet that's a life skill for the situation that they're in. It makes me sad, but anyway. True, but it's necessary. So, yep. Yep. Uh, so yeah. So then we go through these curriculum, this curriculum, um, and then after that, they all the front barn brings up people with the horses, and they all get like a 15, 20 minute time to ride. And you know, we're not trying to build Olympic riders. We're getting them, giving them exposure to the horses, and um, that's that. That's a whole separate kind of thing in and of itself. But um, and then at the end, we do three words to to close your the experience. And you might, three words might be uh, hot, bumpy, stupid horse wouldn't go. And that's one thing. <laughs> um, but I had a girl one time say that she's like, I can't do three words, but I was cantering and I got to hold to the strap, to the, to the, to the bucking strap. And the facilitator who's so good said, what's your bucking strap in life? And she said, my faith. Mm. Because it keeps me centered. It's there whenever I need it. And um, I can stay balanced with it, you know? So there are so many metaphors and these kids are just so, um, they're so resilient and bright and, and deep thinkers like that. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, but how, how old was she? She was about, I think 11 when she okay. said that. Yeah. Wow. I, yeah, wow. It's amazing. So, so how young a child do you take? How young can uh, they go? Seven Five? to 17. No, okay. seven. Seven. Okay. 17. Yeah. Okay. And how many children would you say that you have helped in your 13 years? If you had to add it up. Maybe you said that. Anyway, I'm asking again. Yeah, no, I said 600 families because okay. I count the folks who are the adults. I mean, it's definitely over 150 just from the children's program in the last 13 years. And, um, what what we want people to know is that there are kids who come in that program and stay for seven years. Um, funders came and looked at the program and said, okay, you want money. You're having a breadth of impact, but you're not, or excuse me, you're having a depth of impact, but not a breadth. Like you need to help right. more people. So this program needs to be like a year long, you know, 
And so we tried that. We lost a bunch of kids <laughs> and um, these kids will come in and they'll like, they're very used to regulating their feelings. They know not to get their, their hopes up. So one of the first questions is how long can I stay here? And it used to be, you couldn't stay as long as you want till you're 18. Um, and then you could see them take a sigh of relief because what they're doing is preparing themselves. If this is a six week program, I'm not going to get too attached. Right. That's what they have to do in life. <sighs> yeah. That's heartbreaking. It is. And so how long can they stay now? So they're limited now? They're, they were, we tried it for a year to limit them for a year. And, um, and ironically, our CFO was one of the ones behind it saying that makes sense. We need to reach numbers. And then we had somebody do a movie on us um, that made it to the Palm Beach Film Festival. And in watching the movie, one of the gals who speaks, her name is Tiffany. Um, she's been in in eight years and she's a success story. And he looked at that and he said, I take back what I said about a year. Like if you take any one year out of her life and say that was the year she came, it wouldn't have had the effect that, you know, her mom didn't die until after she was already out. Her mom had an overdose. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. She's now a realtor, and she just sold $2 million with the real estate. She bought her first house when she was 20. Wow. And she'll say that what this program taught me, if it weren't for this, I would just dig my heels in and say, I don't want to do this thing called life. But I know wow. just a day at a time. So he said he takes it back. And I'm like, good, because I wasn't ever going to listen anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't, you can't put a limit like that on what it's going to take to heal someone. Everybody's life is so different and their circumstances change. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Tell us another story. Obviously, no names. So, yeah, well, this one is um, the reason that the horses are so instrumental. Um, one gal, when you're so growing up in this environment, children learn don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. It's how we survive. Um, and Jerry Moe came up with that, by the way. Um, so we explain when the kids get there, if you're going to interact with horses, horses are prey animals and their predator would be like a cougar. If a cougar were laying at their 80 feet is their energy field. If a cougar is laying at 79 feet, faking, sleeping, a horse knows the difference. And that's how they've survived millions of years. So how that relates to us, when we step in that 80 feet, we have to be congruent. We have to be matching just a fancy word for insides match or outsides. If we're not, the horse goes, what are your intentions? Are you going to eat me? You know, you can't hold two truths. 
So we tell the kids who have stuffed their feelings for so many years, you have to feel your feelings. The horse isn't going to attack you. He just won't connect with you, you know? So I literally had a girl raise her hand and she said, what if you've forgotten how to feel? And it took me back. And I said, I didn't know what I said, just keep coming back. You know, it's just what came out of my mouth. So the following two times she came, nothing really exciting happened. But the third time she came back, she was brushing the horse's mane on the, on the cross ties. And I look over and I see from the back, her shoulders are shaking. I'm like, she's crying. And so I go up to her and I said, what, what's going on? And she's almost hyperventilating. And she goes, it's like the floodgate open. <laughs> Every feeling is coming and I can't name them. And I don't know what they are and they're overwhelming. And I said, just breathe. You know, and we worked with it for a minute and she stopped mid sentence. And this shows you how codependent we get. She looked at the horse's eye and she looked at my eye and she said, are my tears upsetting the horse? And I said, no, I said, he is completely fine with your tears because they're authentic. If you were to try and hold them back, he would not be okay with that. Right. She cried a little bit more and, um, she went off and, and at the end of the session, she came up to me and she said, Miss Liz, I, I don't want you to think like everything's perfect, but she said, I physically feel lighter all over yep. my body. Yep. And so I'm not a therapist, but I've worked with enough of them who I know say, where is that in your body? Where do you feel that? So here's a child that three weeks ago verbally said she didn't know how to feel. And now she feels it all over. It's amazing. I think that's huge. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And I, I don't know necessarily think we need to know about the science, but just what you said about how the horse knows mm-hmm. if there's something going on with you and you're not being honest about it or open about it, that the horse can sense that. And I think, I, yeah, I mean, there you have it, you know, and they have to kind of, they have to kind of learn that and learn that, whereas the horse needs to learn that they're safe, they're safe, the child exactly. is safe, the child needs to learn that the horse is safe too. So anyway, that's, that's fabulous. Um, just out of curiosity, did, does insurance cover a program like you have? No, not the, the closest thing that it would, would, we also do the equine therapy, which I have heard that there are two insurance companies out there that are thinking, or maybe have even covered it, but we tried to get listed as a like preferred provider and it's so much administrative work. We're just not, we don't have the infrastructure for it. And that would be the equine therapy part. So that's yeah. so six years ago, we started because we needed to raise funds to keep this going. We have a lot of treatment centers around us. And that's one of the things they modalities they offer is equine therapy. So um, with a few different ones, they come on weekly to the property, the behavioral tech brings them and we do an hour of therapy in this covered arena. So there's no riding involved. It's not like the kids program. It's a um, evidence-based model called we either use EGALA which is E-A-G-A-L-A, or we use natural life midship, two different methods. And um, it's amazing what somebody can learn about. You know, I can tell instantly if an adult is walking a horse, if they have no boundaries, the horse will get them going in a circle. And then I'll say, okay, stop a minute. So what's going on? And what's happening is the horse knows they have no boundaries and they don't want to walk far. So they know if they just keep walking circles, eventually they'll stop. So they're just going in and in and in. And the person doesn't want to keep them out. So I'm like, so let's start teaching you boundaries, you know? And after we teach that, I tell them boundaries are the kindest thing. Brene Brown says this kindest thing you can do for someone, as long as they're frequent, early and light. Yeah do them early and we do them light. And we say, look, this is how I work best. It's how do you feel about that? And let's talk about it versus letting the resentment build up. And then we have to scream and yell and push and 
were hateful and that's never good. No. So. And note to insurance company, if anybody listening just happens to work for an insurance company, what a concept to possibly fund programs that work and produce beneficial results. I'm just putting it out there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. There is, there is a scientific study that cortisol, our stress hormone is actually reduced. Um, University State, um, I think University of Washington did that. And it, if you just Google cortisol study, um, Washington, it'll come up. Right. What's the name of that film and is it available for people to see? Um, we've not listed it yet, yet on Amazon, but I, I am going to list it. Um, it's called Without Wings. Okay. Um, and it's pretty soon it'll be available on, on, um, on Amazon. Um, okay. yeah. And there, if, if you don't mind me offering this, if you, no, 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 no. It out, you can also edit this out, but I did a personal movie called, um, trauma to triumph, which is more of my story, but leads into that. And, um, that's, um, for sale with, I think it's called F M S productions. Um, I have to get that right, but that's where people go to purchase um, movies for treatment centers and for motivation for um, women prisons, things like that. Okay. So cool. sorry, that's my own unapologetic plug. That no, it's totally be- okay. I mean, it one the, well, one of the things we, we do, the whole, one of the whole purposes of the podcast is to offer resources for people and offer things that will help people or give people hope. You know, we've talked before I don't, I can't remember if we've done an interview like yours or not. Um, I think we've done spouses who are married to someone who's addicted, but we've talked before about how some of the worst people affected by this whole, and I call it pandemic because it's bigger than COVID will ever hope to be. Mm-hmm. The, some of the people who are the most affected by this pandemic are the children mm-hmm. of the adults who are addicted to either alcohol or drugs. And, you know, if, if you're listening and you are addicted to alcohol or drugs and you have children, yeah, you need to take note of this. And if you think that it's not affecting your child, you're like dreaming because it will affect your child. And if you are a child, um, even if you're a grown up, I mean, just reach out for help. You know, you shouldn't have to go through what you know liz went through you shouldn't have to experience something like that so anyway great resource too is called NACOA, national association for children of alcoholics or addiction and that's a nacoa.org in fact they are the ones who sesame street in the past two years started doing skits on um, addiction and you know when sesame street starts addressing it it's time but they actually went to um Siswanger, who's the president of NACOA, and Jerry Moe, who people call the kind of the father of children of addiction, and asked them for the appropriate wording to do the skit with, because there's, you know, there's so much shame and judgment in this industry. And we even have changed our language that when we're talking to the kids, instead of saying, you know, it must be really difficult that your mom's an alcoholic or an addict, they're really advising us to stay away from the ICs and saying, it must be very difficult that your mom misuses drugs or alcohol because she could have prescription drugs that are prescribed, but she chops them up and snorts them in two days instead of making them last 30 days, you know? So there it's, it's better language and words matter. And um, it's very hard. I've, I've, I've never thought that over 13 years, we'd still be struggling with how to say this with our mission statement and 
depending upon the audience, you know, how to say addiction. It's, yep. it's really difficult. Yep. You know, they're, they're, I think a lot of times parents have shame when their child is addicted. But what you may not know, listeners, I know Liz knows it, but what you may not know is that the children of addicted adults have shame because they think it's their fault, just like you may think it's your fault. So don't lose sight of that because children go there. Yeah. And a lot of times you're right. Parents will come to me and they'll say, I don't think, you know, I've stopped using, my husband still uses and he's not in treatment yet, but I don't think they remember much. And, you know, I always just smile a little. I don't say much because they don't want to hear it. But trust me, kids notice everything. And well, the things that don't get discussed, they, they're in that egocentric age of their development. So everything is about them. So they yeah. immediately say, and even how it goes into adulthood, like when I was in junior high, I always needed somebody else's affirmation that my judgment was correct. It's like, oh, he's cute. He's cute, right? Do you think he's cute? And somebody described to me how that happens is an alcoholic father will be out late, mom cooked dinner. He comes home late, but he gets toys or candy before, gives it to the kids. The kids are all excited. They forgive. Mom is still super angry. They get in an altercation. The kids go to bed, but they're hearing the violence. The next morning, maybe one of them wakes up while mom's doing breakfast and says, what happened last night? Like I heard it and this, and, and mom's thinking that's going to come down any minute. Nothing, nothing happened. Everything's okay. Stop, stop talking about it. Everything's fine. And so the kid is going, wait a minute. I was here. I know I it know wasn't fine. I, right. I heard it. So that happening over and over, you start going, am I crazy? Yep. And, and you know, you, you have to be somewhat politically correct because it's the business you're in. But I'm going to say right now, if anybody listening thinks that their child maybe didn't know when they were addicted because their child was really little and didn't remember, if that makes you sleep well at night, fine. It's not true. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Get them to me. It was, it's not, you know, <laughs> when people it's go, not, children don't remember. Yeah. Of it's, course they do. We want to tell ourselves to, again because of the shame. Yeah. And that, that's so, one thing. And I don't want to get too far off, but that when you talked about the fact of the discussion of whether it's a brain disease, that's when I hear that, I feel like talking about it as a brain disease is the only way or one of the only ways that I know of is to start taking the shame stigma away. But yet I never thought about it the other way of what you discussed on a previous podcast. So there's, it's such a complex issue. It is. It is. Um, the, the problem, one of the, pro without getting into the whole brain disease thing, I mean, one of the problems is that sometimes then the treatment becomes more drugs. And our whole goal is for anybody listening who has a problem with drugs or has someone, a loved one who has a problem with drugs, we just want them to be clean and sober. We don't want them to be dependent on anything, any right. substance. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that anyway, that's just one right. of the, one of the problems with that. And yes, we have expressed opinions about on that subject, <laughs> but I just want to thank you for everything you're doing. And I want to thank you for being willing to share your story. You know, you don't have to do that. You know, you do it because you care enough about what you're doing and the children that you're helping. And that's huge. That that's, that's just huge. Thank you. I do it because this is the silent, silent um, children who are suffering. And if we don't, who will, no one wants to talk about it, but we, this is, these are our future leaders. 
And if we don't give them coping skills to figure out a way, um, it's just going to keep repeating the same generational cycle. So I thank you for giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. And I would like to say that you were talking about a pebble earlier that you drop in the water. Every child that you help <laughs> is going to have a ripple effect because they're going to be able to influence others. And so you you never, doing what you do, it's kind of similar in some ways to what we do with a podcast. I don't know that we will ever know how many people um, are helped from either listening to the podcast or, you know, doing your program. But that's why we keep doing it because we know. Mm-hmm. That's yep. awesome. You guys are great. I, I, how many you've done in the last five, <laughs> been five years? Yes. We're in our sixth year now. And, and I think this one I said was episode number 269. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for what you do. Of course. Thank you for having me. Fascinating interview different perspective. Um, I think we've had some people who, you know, were themselves addicted and had parents who were, and that's kind of how they ended up down that road. But Liz didn't go that way. And yet um, was very deeply affected by her mother's alcoholism, which is absolutely expected. You know, I think sometimes people think, oh, children don't listen, or children don't understand, or children probably don't remember. It's really not true. And I don't say that to make you feel bad if you are an addicted parent or a parent in recovery. I say that because you need to be aware of it. And if you have children and you are in recovery, but you were an addict when they were little, check out this organization and see if there's one in your area and get them some help because you'll be surprised what they know, what they remember, and what they understand. The, again, the organization is called Horses Healing Hearts, okay? And you can find them online. And yes, anyway, something to keep in mind. If you are addicted or you know someone who's addicted, please don't wait, get help. Uh, we're heading into summer. Um, not that that is relevant, but get help, okay? And we'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.